Well, good morning, everybody. For those of you I do not know, my name is Mike. It's an honor to be back here with you this week for week three of our identity series. Didn't Sellers do a great job last week? Would you let him know how proud you are of him? Did a super, super job. He used to be with our college students every Tuesday, but a lot of you didn't get to know him, didn't know him till last week. He did a great, great job. We began this series three weeks ago talking about not just who the world says that we are, but who God says that we are. And we're in a constant battle in this journey of figuring out who we are, who we truly believe we are. So I want you to do me a favor. I'm gonna give you a little head start. Take your Bibles, turn to the book of First John. We're gonna camp out there here in a second. Or I'm sorry, First John, First Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. We're gonna look at two verses, verse nine and verse 10 of First Peter chapter two. Um, last week, I had the privilege. We got away for a couple days, but I got to be last Sunday with a couple that was at North Star in our early, early days named Todd and Cynthia Cullen. Uh, Todd pastors a church, Hilton Head Island Community Church, and we got to celebrate with them. They opened a new building for their community, so I got to be there to pray over their building, and it was just cool to see two of our own that are out there now getting it done, making a difference, making a mark. Also last Sunday, Russ Butcher, who was on our team back in the day as our student pastor, and Russ celebrated his 13th anniversary at his church in Loganville, and both of them are doing a great job. Would y'all give the Lord a hand for that? Isn't that cool? That was really neat. If you're visiting Hilton Head, go see Todd and Cynthia. Cynthia, if you're going on vacation to Loganville, call me, all right? That's not good for your family, all right? You need to go somewhere other than Loganville. But anyways, all right, so let's, let's talk about this. God has a you that he sees. You have a mirror you look at for your own earthly identification. God has an identification and a you that he sees, and you have a you that you see. We, we live in a world that's really good at ascribing value to us. Um, how many of you, when you grew up, you did not have a phone that went with you everywhere? Raise your hand if you didn't. Okay, a lot of you guys in here, if you carried your phone, place, or phone back then, you'd have had a big cord attached to it and it wouldn't have been cool. And a big antenna, all right? It wouldn't have been cool. Uh, nowadays, we live in an environment that our phones are always with us. Uh, back when we were growing up, if we got left out of a deal with our friends, we didn't necessarily know that we'd been left out, right? We didn't know what they were doing. I'm thankful. So back in college, I sort of went on the chase for Ann. We, we met each other, and I asked her out. She went out with me. I thought we had a great first date. Evidently, she did not feel the same. But anyway, so I thought we had a great first date. Well, then all of a sudden for subsequent weeks, I would call her and she was always busy. I mean, she had like a prayer meeting in her dorm and then she was hanging out with friends and she was going home for the weekend. And I'm making the assumption that she's really busy. I didn't string together for like eight straight weeks. The answer was no. Finally, my roommate who's from Jessup, Georgia looked at me and goes, my man, she don't like you, all right? And so that's what he said. So anyways, now I'm thankful. I'm thankful that phones didn't exist back then so I could see the pictures from all the things that she was doing, right? We live in a world now 
that the pressure on our kids for their identity is greater than it's ever been. We, we live in a world governed by likes and governed by friend follows. And Tim Elmore, who's really the guru of, of this generation that's coming out right now, Tim said that the anxiety level of teenagers is equal, it's equal to the anxiety level of mental patients back in the 1950s because they're having to carry things they've never were supposed to carry because we live in a world that's trying to place an identity on us. John, the uh, disciple that Jesus loved, is what he said, John, the disciple that took care of Jesus' mother at the end of his days, wrote a book. It was called 1 John. I don't want you to turn there. I just want you to look at the screen. This early church was beginning to believe some things that weren't true as well. They were beginning to buy into some things that weren't right as well. And he writes them in 1 John 3, and he says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called, what's the next word? Of God. And so we are. Hey guys, don't you see what God has done for us that we should be called as children? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And here's the word I want you to write at the top of your outline today to set us off. Ready? The word is process. You are in process. From the minute you asked Jesus Christ into your heart, you began a process, all right? You have begun a process that you will be in process till you go home on the day that he appears or the day you go home to meet him. When that day happens, the process will be complete. But until then, You're going to be working on, and you'll be working through this battle of your identity. And what you believe will determine how you live. Would you pray with me today? Father, we believe your word to be truth. God, we believe your word to hold ultimate value. So God, today, we want to ingest it. We want to take it in. We want to shelter our lives in it. God, we live in a world of constant messages. They began before we even got out of bed this morning. They were on our phone. They were waiting for us. And many times we consume those messages before we consume what you think. So God, would you clear our minds and clear our hearts for just a couple minutes this morning that we could look in and see what it is that you have for us. Speak to us, challenge us, push us, and change us to be who you created us to be. And Father, that is my prayer, and I pray it now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all join me and let's stand in the honor of reading God's word together. First Peter chapter 2. Listen to what he says. Simon Peter's writing this letter. He said, but you're not like that. For you, the people he's writing to and us today, the family of God, believers, you are a chosen people. You are royal priest, a holy nation, God's very own 
possession. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you had no identity as a people, now you are God's people. Once you received no mercy, now you have received God's mercy. You aren't who everyone says that you are. You are who he says that you are. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Before you're seated, turn around, say hey to somebody around you, and then you can find a seat and we'll dive in. All right, you got a pen, pencil, something to write with. There's a couple blanks there at the top. We battle in this world a false identity. Here's what a false identity is. It's when I look to culture to determine my value. I look at it culture to determine my value. Is there anything necessarily wrong with social media? No, it's a great tool. The problem is, is when that tool defines our value. My value is set up by how many likes I have. My value is set up by how many friends I have. My value is set up by some arbitrary moving marker, right? It's never the same. It's always moving. False identity is we let culture determine our value. Here's the problem with it. It's not real. The beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Here's what we've got to remember. Ready? What I do doesn't determine who I am. What I do does not determine who I am. Who I am determines what I do. Who I am determines what I do. My true identity, my true value comes from being a child of God. 89 times in Scripture, you are referred to as, once you come to know Christ, as a child of God. So what does that mean? Well, it means this. On everything, there hangs a price tag. Right, and that price tag determines what something costs. In each of our lives, somebody's hung a price tag on you. It may have been a coach. It may have been a friend. It may have been a girlfriend or a boyfriend. It may have been a, a job. It may have been what you think from social media. But there's a price tag hung on you. And your belief in this price tag determines who your identity is really in. Well, the reality of today is there is a price tag that God has put on your life as well. And he has a value that he has ascribed to you, whether you believe it or you don't believe it. If you have come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, he has something about you he wants you to know. And he has thoughts about you he wants you to get. Thought number one that we need to remember. I'm completely accepted. I am completely accepted. We live in a world where the hurt of rejection runs deep. There are counselors who make their living 
based off people's hurts from their past. There are men who drive beautiful cars and live in great homes that are still trying to please a dad who's left this earth and is no longer here. We live in a world of wanting to earn acceptance, right? You got to fit in with the crowd. You got to be in the group. You got you to you do this to fit in. You got to do that to fit in. Here's what I'm going to tell you from Scripture. Spiritually, you are completely accepted. L- listen to what he says here. You are a what kind of people? What does it say there? Chosen. I want you to write this down under number one. Ready? He picked me. He picked me. He picked me. He chose you because he wanted you. It's literally the picture, remember being on a playground when you're growing up and people are picking teams? God knowing your skill set and God knowing what you can do, his finger landed on you and he said, I choose you. Why does he choose us? He chooses us because he wants us and he completely accepts us. Everybody look at me. Not the good part of us we put out for public display. He loves us for the part of us we don't want anybody to know. Our flaws and all. We are completely accepted. What does that mean? That means I don't have to work for it. I don't have to earn it. See, we live in a performance-based culture, right? So the Braves today will wrap up uh, their regular season. They had a great year getting ready for the playoffs that start the end of this week. And they've got a massive roster with September call-ups. But when the postseason roster comes out, they're going to whittle it down. So some of those guys today are playing, they're performing to be kept on the postseason roster. I think Acuna and Freddie are going to be fine. But anyways, so some of the other guys, they're, they're playing for their spot on the roster. So if they perform well today when they come in, they will be on the roster at the end of the week. If they do not perform well, they'll be left off the postseason roster. We think spiritually that happens. Ladies and gentlemen, God does not love you because you perform well and hate you because you don't perform. You are completely accepted. You're completely accepted. You are his chosen people. But look at point number two. I am extremely valuable. I am extremely valuable. You are a holy nation, God's very own. What's that next word? You're God's very own what? Possession. You're extremely valuable. The tag that he put on you, and it's big. Well, how does that happen? Values determine two ways, and I want you to write these down. I hope you remember. Principle number one, by who owns it? Who owns it? Steve Roach and I were talking before the service this morning, and so I had quite a quite illustrious playing career that you don't end up being a pastor because it was illustrious. All right, and so anyway, so I had a, I had a college playing career and I had a glove that I finished with. 
So if I were to take that glove and throw it out on eBay this afternoon and say, this glove appeared in this many NCAA games, this glove appeared in uh, this many NCAA record performances, of which you don't want to be a part of. All right, in, in this glove, this glove was worn by a current pastor, all right? And then also going out on eBay today was a glove worn by the Cy Young winner, Greg Maddox, and a glove by the Hall of Famer, Greg Maddox. How many of you think Greg's Ma- Greg Maddox's glove would be of more value than my glove? Raise your hand, all right? That was hurtful, but it's true, all right? So it's a lot more value because of who owned it, right? Hall of Famer owned it. If you follow the show Seinfeld, right, George bought a car that was driven by John Voigt, and they had his pencil. But anyways, if you don't follow Seinfeld, you won't get it. But he thought the car had more value because, anyways, it's a funny story. But anyways, it's who owned it. So value is determined by who owned it, second part of value is determined by what's somebody willing to pay for it. Did you write that down? What's somebody willing to pay for it? So Ann and I, we, uh, we, we got married in, I, we ended up, she ended up quitting hanging out with her friends, got her heart right, and we got together. All right, and so and, and we ended up getting married in October 91. We rented for about a year, and then we wanted to be homeowners. And so we bought our very first house, $88,000. We paid for that bad boy. All right. And so it was a, it was a mansion. All right. And it was, it was out in, in Cherokee, out of Woodstock. And uh, we, we had our beautiful first home. It was awesome. It was the home that we had when Casey came into this world, and we had some great neighbors, but it was just way out. It was way out by the lake, and I was a youth pastor here in Kennesaw. It was a long ways to be driving back and forth, so we decided to sell the house. Now, we put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears in the house. It was brand new when we bought it. We finished the basement. I'm sort of a neat freak about my yard. My yard looked great, and Ann decorated it great. And so we decided it was time to sell and move it a little closer in. So we bought it for 88000 And so I thought, well, we'll just sell it. And so I went to Kinko's. You remember Kinko's? And so we took a beautiful color picture of the house. I wrote up a, a nice little swag article about the house and put in a little for sale by owner box in front of the house because we had a lot of traffic driving through that neighborhood, not. All right, but anyway, so for sale by owner box there in the front of, the, in front of my yard, and we put them in there and I set the price at $136,000. I mean, I thought it was a great, I mean, we've been in almost two to three years. I should make some money on this thing. And so uh, we set the price, don't groan, all right? And so I, I set the price of the house. I thought it was a very fair price. And so, lo and behold, we had it out in the yard. Well, we start getting rings at the doorbell. They weren't people looking. It was these pesky people called realtors. All right, have you met these people? And so I'm looking at some of my friends out here that are real estate, and they're like, we would love to represent your house, and we would love to help you. And I'm like, you know, I think I can do it. I think I got, the, I'm a youth pastor. I got this thing, all right? And so I, I can figure all this out. And they're like, well, you're probably not gonna get a lot of traffic out here. And I said, I understand. And then I remember one of them, they had the audacity to say, I hate to tell you this, but no home in your neighborhood, there's a thing called comps, and there's no home in your neighborhood's ever sold over 105. And I was like, you need to leave my house, sir. All right, you need to go now. 
comps. Who needs comps? What do comps mean? Well, after sitting on that house for a month or two, I found a good friend of mine that was a realtor. And guess what? He set the house at a value that somebody was willing to pay for it. And it sold. <laughs> Not for 136000 It was for like, 105, all right? And so, but anyways, I don't know how that crazy thing works. It's nuts, isn't it? And so he, he set it a value because worth is determined by what somebody's willing to pay. If you are a child of Christ, who owns you? He does. If you gave your heart to him, he is your father. What was he willing to pay for you? Well, Scripture said there was a ransom out on you. And that ransom was for the sin that you and I have committed that separated us from God. He was willing to shed his blood to pay your ransom. What were you worth? His son's blood. You ever question your identity? You ever question how God thinks about you? He doesn't. You are completely accepted and you are incredibly valued and point number three and you are eternally loved once you had no identity as people now you are God's people you could substitute in that word for people you are family once you had no family now you have family and you are eternally loved. His love for you, everybody look at me, his love for you has nothing to do with your performance. His love for you is his choice. And it's for eternity. So last night I stood at a, at a wedding in Cedartown, all right, which people, these wedding venues, man, they're out there. And so I drove out to Cedartown for this wedding and it was awesome. And then we shared it at pretty much every wedding. They will use this verse. Love is patient. Love is kind. I think the bride picks it out as a reminder to the guy. But anyway, so love is patient. Love is kind. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And then Paul goes on and he writes this. But now abide these three, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. That's interesting. Faith and hope are important. The greatest of these is love. Reality is, ladies and gentlemen, there will be a day that will be your last day on this planet. Either he's going to come back to get you or you're going to go home. If you know him, you're going to go home to meet him or be separated from him. But, but that day will come in each of our lives. When we get to heaven as a believer, are we going to need faith anymore? No. No, everything you've hoped for, you're going to live. Faith. You gonna need hope anymore? No. I'm, what am I gonna, I'm hoping in where I'm at? No. I'm not gonna need faith anymore. I'm not gonna need hope anymore. But is love always gonna be there? For the rest of eternity, his love will be unending. His love for you is unending. That's why the greatest of those things is love because heaven is full of it. It's full of that love that he has for you and you'll live out the rest of eternity. In just a couple weeks, we're gonna start a series here at North Star called Someday Soon on Heaven. 
We're going to talk about what that's going to be like. But one of those traits of heaven is love. Your eternity loved. I want you to write down two thoughts. Ready? It's unconditional and it's unending. It's unconditional. There are no strings to it. And it's unending. Point number four, I'm totally forgiven. I'm totally forgiven. Once you receive no mercy, now you've received God's mercy. All right, let's, let's, we're going to do a little theology here real quick. When Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, were any of you around when he died 2,000 years ago? Just checking, all right? And so, y'all get a little sleepy on me, all right? So, no, you, none of us were around. So, every when he died for your sins, he died for the sins that you hadn't even committed yet. He died for the sins that you are currently committing. He'll die for this. He died for the sins that you committed in the future. It was a once and for all transaction. He paid your sin debt, meaning this. When that day comes and you leave this earth and you go to heaven, we, we ask forgiveness here of our sins, not so God will forgive our Their sins are already forgiven. We ask forgiveness of our sins to remind ourselves, not remind God, remind ourselves of the, the way we've fallen short and to thank God for that forgiveness. But let's say one, one day before you eat your Cheerios and your oatmeal that morning, you got on your phone, you checked Instagram, checked the Brave score, you checked to see the Falcons box score, and you did all that stuff, and, and something happened, and you went home to be with the Lord before you were able to ask forgiveness for your sins that day. It, are you going to get to heaven? Is God going to look at you and go, oh, listen, I'm really glad you're here, but come over here. We need to have a little talk, all right? And so is that going to happen? No, because... Your sins, when they were forgiven, they were 100% forgiven. You are completely forgiven. Totally. Here's why this is so hard. On earth, here, we have this phrase, I'll forgive, but I won't what? He does. He does both. He forgives and forgets. If you were to walk up in heaven and say, Jesus, I need to really tell you how sorry I am for doing that, he'll go, I don't even know what you're talking about. It's forgotten because it was forgiven. Point number five, and I'm fully capable. I am fully capable. You are a royal priest and you're like, dude, I am a baseball coach. I'm not a royal priest. I'm a business person. I'm not a royal priest. I'm a school teacher. I, I'm not a royal priest. I just sell real estate. I'm not a royal priest. I'm just law enforcement. That's not how he sees you. He sees you as somebody of so much value, you can do two things. See, a priest had two roles. A priest's job was to represent man to God and God to man. Right? That's what a priest did. So back then, you would come up the way it worked in the old, the old system. 
When you had something you had done wrong, you would go tell your priest, and the priest would represent you before the Lord. So it would be like, oh, it's Monday afternoon. I better swing by North Star and tell Mike what I did wrong, all right? And so I'm sitting there at my little desk, and y'all come in. I need to tell you what I did this weekend, and here's all the things I need forgiveness for. And I'd go into the inner sanctum, and I would go, God, I need to represent Sharon, and here's what Sharon did. And I know she did it last week, but she did it again. And so I'm, I'm going to give you all these things. That's what priests did. See, when Jesus sat on the cross, that, that went away. He sees you. As the priest, you represent man to God, but you also represent God to man. Did you ever know that there are some people that watch your life to determine what God looks like? They're determining their belief of God on how you live. Why? You're their priest. You're, you're You're the earthly representation of your heavenly father. No, 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 I'm just, a, I'm just a coach. No, no, that's not what he thinks. You're a Christ follower who happens to be a principal. You're a Christ follower who happens to be a business leader. And he wants you to represent God to man. You know why that's so powerful? You always notice light most in the darkest places. That's why he put you where he put you. That's why you're doing what you're doing. See, ladies and gentlemen, here, here's the fact of the matter. I think we sell ourselves short. I think God looks at us and says, you could be this. And we look at us and say, no, I'm just this. God looks at us and say, he says, here's what I see. And we look at our own lives and we see our flaws and we say, no, Here's what I see. So I deal with it like you do. There's days I get up, I don't, I, I feel like I sell y'all short. I'm like, God, there's guys out there that know more. They're better communicators. I'm probably not the guy. And I think that too. And God looks at us and he says, I'm not depending on you. You depend on me, and if you depend on me, I'll get you where you need to go. So here's the question of the day. Who's put the price on your price tag? Are you believing what the Lord wrote on it? Or are you believing what the world wrote on it? That's a decision only you can make. Would you pray with me? And some of you are in this room today and you're a believer and you know Christ. But you're like, Mike, I have bought the lie, bro. I've forgotten what God thought about me. And I'm living out of what the enemy said. I'm living out of what the world said. I want you to remember this. Scripture had a word for the enemy In fact, Jesus said he is the father of lies. He loves to write a lie on your price tag. You're not valuable. You're not worth anything. You got to earn it, man. You got to date this person. You got to live in this place. You got to do this.
Father, my prayer for us today is we'll live out of who you say that we are. I am in Christ. I am covered by him. I'm valuable. I'm accepted. His love is never ending. Just let God speak to you. Maybe, maybe you're here today and you say, Mike, I, uh, dude, I walked away from religion a long time ago. I only heard the rules. I only heard the do's and the don'ts. Mike, I, I just feel God tugging me. I feel God pulling me to him. That's the Holy Spirit. If today you would say, Mike, I would like to accept Christ today. Accept Jesus today. Can I lead you in a prayer to meet him? Could I? It goes like this. Dear Lord Jesus, would you pray that? Dear Lord Jesus, I need you. I believe you live for me. Would you pray that? I believe you died for me. And I believe he rose again just for me. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and be my personal Lord and Savior today. If today you prayed that prayer with me, it's the greatest step you'll ever make. Father, thanks for our time in your word. Thanks for a time to remind ourselves of what you think. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.